The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, two months after a jury found him guilty of the murder of George Floyd, ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin returned to court to find out his sentence, and like every aspect of this trial, it was compelling. From the victim impact statements to the judge's final ruling, Court TV's Julie Janae was on site covering the hearing and will tell us what she learned. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for downloading the Court TV podcast. And this is an important one that we're doing because this podcast, we're really dealing with the conclusion of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the man who murdered George Floyd. And I say it's the conclusion of the trial because when there is a guilty verdict by a jury, the, the trial is not officially over until that defendant is sentenced. And Derek Chauvin has been sentenced uh, by Judge Cahill. 22 and a half years is the um, sentence. It was given out in months. But what exactly does it mean and what happened inside the courtroom? Because there were some um, incredibly emotional and impactful moments. And then there was bizarro world. And let's bring in Court TV legal correspondent Julia Janae, who was in Minneapolis for all of this. Uh, Julia, I want to start with bizarro world, okay? And this was really... Um, strange and and bizarre. First of all, I'm going to play in a, in a moment, Derek Chauvin speaking in the courtroom, and we haven't heard that much from him. Um, but can you give, give, give me, I want to hear your take first of all, because I'm describing it as a bizarro moment, okay, in, in this setup for the listeners. How would you describe what we are about to play for everyone? There was buildup to this because we weren't sure if – Derek Chauvin was going to say anything if he was going to take the stand and testify in his own defense at the sentencing. We knew he was going to get to wear a suit. We knew that he was uh, going to be there with friends and family there in the courtroom. But was he going to say anything? And if he did, what was the tone going to be? Was he going to continue to say he was innocent or was he going to apologize? But what we heard from him left me straight shaking my head and scratching it. I just didn't understand what he meant by it and why he chose to use this moment that we were all paying attention to, to say this. Right. It, it, okay. Let's just play it for everyone first. And, and again, this is the opportunity for the defendant. He's about to be sentenced. It's his opportunity to uh, address the court, address the world really, because the world is watching this. And, and this is, and I know he's in a tough spot, right? He's been convicted of murder. The, and, and, you know, he's public enemy number one. But still, I, I don't understand this. Let's listen to Derek Chauvin in the moment that he has to address everyone. This is what he said. At this time, due to some additional legal matters at hand, I'm not able to give a full formal statement at this time. Um, but very briefly, though, I... Uh, do want to give my condolences to the Floyd family. Um, there's going to be some other information in the future that would be of interest. And uh, I hope things will give you some 
some peace of mind. Thank you. What? What did you just say, Derek Chauvin? I, I'm, I'm, and I'm scratching my head here again. All right, so let's go through this. Um, let's begin with there are some additional legal matters, uh, Julia Janae. As, as we start there, I mean, yes, there's probably an appeal and there's federal charges, right? Exactly. He's facing hate crime charges, and those are the ones that he was indicted on after he was convicted in this case, so we knew that was pending. We also know that he is fighting this conviction. He's not going to go away lightly on what the jury decided on April 20th. His attorney had filed a motion for a new trial. It was denied right before this sentencing hearing, so that clears the way for an appeal. But yeah, he has some pending things, but I mean, he did this very timidly. He just kind of Look back at the family, look back at the microphone. His eyes were darting around the entire time. But what did he mean by it? Yeah, it, it, and I understand. And, and again, I don't want to crucify the guy here for this statement because I know you're, you're, um, handcuffed. He's not literally handcuffed, but he's handcuffed as to what he can say that could impact his federal case, can impact his appeal, everything else by making admissions. But, um, you know, what he said is it's it's confusing. It's cryptic. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I think we all understand there's legal matters. Um, I don't know. I, I think maybe just maybe you you kind of like consult with your attorney a little bit and figure out a way to say this in a in a way that is both um, not so cryptic and so weird and awkward and uncomfortable for everyone, but in a way that makes some level of sense because here we are and we don't know exactly what you're talking about. So the legal matters, I kind of get that. We understand he has outstanding legal matters, Uh, but he could say, you know, he could be more direct and say, listen, um, you know, on on the advice of my attorney, I'm not going to talk about uh, the actual facts of the case because of all the pending legal matters or cases that I have against me, something just a little bit more clear. Now, the condolences, and and that's been interpreted differently by different folks. And, and some people look at it and say it doesn't mean much when you say condolences because it's not an apology. It's not, I'm sorry. Um, but then we look at the pending legal matters. You say, I'm sorry, that's an admission. So what... Uh, how was all of this taken, that, that that magic word, condolences? Inside the courtroom, there were about eight members of George Floyd's family sitting in the same area where the jury that Derek Chauvin watched every day, who ultimately decided his fate during the trial, where they were sitting. And like I mentioned, he turned around to face them. He wasn't wearing a mask. He did look at them, but zero reaction from the family. They didn't make eye contact with him. They didn't seem to make any kind of movement or acknowledgement to what he said. Um, and that is true for this entire statement that Derek Chauvin made. You know, there were, I, I, you know, I, I think about what his message was, was was attempting to be at that moment. And, you know, there and, and this is why you, you sit down and, and sometimes in that moment, um, and I don't fault people who have to write down what they want to say because of legal implications, but also wanting uh, the, the moment is so difficult. And some people just aren't great public speakers. They're not used to standing up. And this is the first time he's really talking about all of this. Um, I, I just think he would have been better served. And I think the Floyd family would have been better served if he had been uh, 
very precise in his choice of words and, and what he was saying. And when you say condolences, I don't think that gets you there. Maybe, um, you know, I want to apologize. I am so sorry uh, for for what happened to to George Floyd, and and I, I understand my um, level of of responsibility for what happened that day. And you're not really admitting anything, but you're saying I I understand my my level of response. There, I think there was a different way where he could have acknowledged his part without um, blowing up any uh, potential appeal, but. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough part of our system, right? Because you're, you're at your sentencing, but it's not the end of your legal road necessarily. So most criminal defendants, uh, many say nothing. And we've seen that Julia, right? We see it often. I actually anticipated that he was not going to say anything, but you know, he's got such a great lawyer and his lawyer is so eloquent when it comes to navigating this very difficult case and the way he comes off. I'm surprised that Eric Nelson did not help him write a statement that was more clear, did involve, I wish I could make a formal statement, but I can't. Like, what's going to be a formal statement? How is that going to look in the future if we get one? Yeah, I I don't know what that means either. I mean, because if it's after all appeals, we're talking years, right? (laughs) Years down the road, potentially, with all of this. Um, All right. The next part of what he said, there's going to be some other information of interest this is where it starts getting weird, like really weird. Like they're okay. So what is that? You know, you're saying something, but you're not saying anything, and you're being really cryptically elusive. And I, I don't understand how he thought that would help anything. Um, and maybe it's just an awkward choice of words again, because he doesn't have anything written down, and he's kind of you know shooting from the hip with the entire world watching him. But any idea what he's talking about, other information of interest, I mean, there's not going to be more of an investigation as to what happened here. That's what was weird to me. There would be information of interest as if there's something that's going to be found out, that it's going to be revealed that no one knows anything about. And we've had you know, 13 months worth of an investigation, a uh, month-long trial where anyone and everyone took to the stand and talked about every angle of this investigation. So for him to have some information, it almost seemed like that he was holding on to it. And that even his attorney who put on a very strong case for him didn't have that information. Perhaps it, it, it was the most confusing part of that to me, because if it is in fact the plea deal that people are saying it may reference, you know, information of interest to them doesn't quite seem to jive with a plea deal. To me, when he first said this, and we're talking about a plea deal for the federal outstanding federal charges, to me, the only thing that, and the other part of this was, I hope it gives you some peace of mind. To me, the only thing that would give a family peace, and this is based on on my history at, at Court TV, is that it's over. That it's that this is over and the family um, doesn't get closure. They never do, but can turn the page on Derek Chauvin. And what that would be would be, okay, maybe some sort of a a plea deal with the feds. But to me, more importantly, um, waiving any right to appeal anything. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to do some sort of deal, right? 
some global deal where, okay, this will be the deal for the sentence of the state time and the federal time, and there'll be no appeals. And once this deal is done, it's over. I go away. I do my time. You don't have to worry about coming back to court. You don't have to worry about a habeas. You don't have to worry about an appeal of the sentence. You don't have to worry about some legal issue. You don't have to worry about going through this again with me. And to me, that's the only thing. I I can't think of anything else that could somehow be interpreted as perhaps giving the family some peace of mind other than being able to turn the page here, Julia. That would be huge. The way you just described it, that would be huge if he is going to accept the 22.5-year conviction sentence on the state level, whatever the feds give him, and that we don't hear from him in court again. I think that would be huge. And that may give the family, I can't speak for them, but that would seem to give some sort of peace of mind in the sense of not coming to court again. But that's if the family is happy with the sentence that he gets. The 22.5 years, he's not going to serve all of that. He's going to serve around 15 Um, I looked on the corrections website recently. They have his anticipated release date as 2035. Yeah, but unfortunately, uh, prosecutors don't get to appeal sentences, like unless it's an illegal sentence. Right. Um, Sentences can be appealed by the defense trying to get it lowered, but the prosecution cannot appeal a sentence to get it raised. It doesn't work that way in our system. So um uh, unfortunately for the family, I know they wanted the maximum 40. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. And, and and that ship has sailed. So, um, you know, I don't know where where they they were. Any victim's family gets any sense of a peace of mind. But from from my experience, what I've seen is that they can they can they don't have to go back to a courtroom. They don't have to hear the name. They don't have to hear about it. There's no stories like you think about um Lacey Peterson's family. And and I mean, here we are, 17, we're still talking about that case. And Scott Peterson's still trying to get out of jail and still trying to get a new trial. Um, so that family never gets that sense of of of, of um, turning the page because it, it never ends. It never ends for so many of these cases. But if you waive everything, then it could potentially end. All right. I wanted to play one more uh, part of, of that sentencing uh, related to Derek Chauvin, which is he had one person come in and speak on his behalf because that was another big question, wasn't it, Julia? Like, no one has really been outspoken on behalf of Derek Chauvin. We just, it, there hasn't been any sort of public showing of support or anything else for him, has there? Not at all. Not in the courtroom and not in the media for the many months leading up to this trial. Even the one chair that was in the courtroom for him throughout jury selection and through the trial where he could have had a representative sitting there supporting him, like George Floyd's family had someone there every day. Throughout jury selection, there was no one there. For most of the trial, there was no one there. And then when they did have someone there closer to those last days when the defense case was going on, it was someone who did not want to give their name to the pool reporter, didn't want to make any kind of statement, just sat there and left. And perhaps it's it's understandable people don't want to become a, a, a target um, in case there's anyone that wants to call them out. Um, but on, on Judgment Day, which is sentencing day, his mom came into the courtroom. Here's Derek Chauvin's mother. Derek always dedicated his life and time to the police department. Even on his days off, he would call in to see if they needed help. 
Derek is a quiet, thoughtful, honorable, and self selfless man. He has a big heart, and he always has put others before his own. The public will never know the loving and caring man he is, but his family does. Even though I have not spoken publicly, I have always supported him 100% and always will. And I always feel bad uh, for the moms of criminal defendants because, you know, 999 times out of 100, they haven't done anything wrong. Or 999 times out of 1,000, I'm sorry. Uh, they haven't done anything wrong, right? Um, and, and, you know, they're stuck, they're there. A mom is always going to go to bat. But there's one thing that she said, Julia, that I think Nelson, uh, Eric Nelson, his attorney, also spoke about. Um, it was the fact that he wasn't supposed to work that day. Chauvin, that, that was Chauvin's day off. And they asked him to come to work, and he came to work. Well, it kind of jives with exactly what she said, that he called in when he wasn't scheduled to go to work to see if he could work. So clearly, being an officer was everything to him. And just to tell you some behind the scenes of who was inside the courtroom as well with his mother, of course, they likely could have had more people speak. She was the only one that notified the court she would be speaking. And she also agreed to be shown. She had the option to not be shown by our court TV cameras that were inside, but her image was displayed. That was with her consent. But also Chauvin's ex-wife was present, her son, so Chauvin's stepsons, and his parents, so his mother and his father, were there in the courtroom present for that sentencing. They were off camera, and um, they were there supporting him on this final day, but we did not see that kind of support during the trial. Now, I will just say one thing, and it may not be true. Uh, I just, I just, I know a lot of police officers, and sometimes, and and I actually did this as a as a as a reporter slash anchor at, at a station. I always volunteered to come into work on my days off too because I wanted the overtime. I'm just putting it out there. I mean, and it could be part of it too. Well, um, we know, but it's also a dedication. Side note, remember, he is still facing charges for tax evasion because he did not report his overtime allegedly to the government. He had massive overtime, like $96,000 worth in three years. But that's another case that is not what we are here to talk about. We're not here to talk about it. And and I'll, I'll take uh, his attorney and his mom at their word that, yeah, he was dedicated to his job. And, you know, part of it is you, you work, though. You're, you're allowed to get paid to work at the, at the end of the day. Okay. That's one part of the sentencing. When we come back, let's talk about what um, sentencing day is really about, which is about the victim and the victim impact statements. We'll do that when we return. Renowned journalist Ashley Benfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Benfield. All new episodes, Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. Do you wish that he was still here with us? Yeah, but he is. Through his spirit? Yes. Yes. And when you see your daddy again one day, what do you want to do when you see him? I want to play with him. 
what kind of games do you want to play with them? Um, I want to um, play with him, have fun, go on a plane ride, go, um, and that's it. Yeah. Would you- we used to, we used to have dinner meals every single night before we went to bed. My um, my daddy always used to help me brush my teeth. Oh. Do you miss him helping brush your teeth? Yes. That's George Floyd's daughter, and she spoke at the sentencing of Derek Chauvin. Um, it was uh, remotely done, uh, but. The world heard her. Um, Julia Janae still with us, Core TV legal correspondent. Uh, Julia, and I noticed as as we were listening to her, you put your head down, your eyes were covered. Tell me. Tell me what you're thinking about when you hear her voice. Oh, it's so hard to hear her. So hard to imagine a seven-year-old who's having to deal with the death of her father and just understanding death. She sounds so young and so innocent and it's just hard to hear her voice she captured all of our hearts when we saw her on top of steve jackson's shoulders saying daddy changed the world but that was the clip of what we heard from her and in the sentencing we heard so much more about her her personality what she loved about her dad. And it's just hard to listen to it. Listen to it several times because we've been covering the sentencing, but it doesn't get any easier when you think about it in terms of Gianna Floyd. Now, here's what I hope the lesson is from this. And and it, and, it, and it's really for, um, I think for all of us and, and, and especially for law enforcement as well, is that even if you're dealing with someone in, in a criminal investigation and someone may have a, a long rap sheet, Someone may be uh, even a career criminal. I'm not saying George Floyd is a career criminal, but, you know, he, he has a little bit of a rap sheet. He's done some things. Um, and that day uh, had allegedly been up to some things that were not right. But just like Derek Chauvin in that courtroom, you know, you don't judge his whole life by his actions of one day. Um, it's the same for any criminal suspect or someone who's being investigated, or someone who's even being arrested for something, is that there is always more to that human than that moment. And that moment may be really bad, and and sometimes it's, it's horrific, like in the case of Derek Chauvin, right? It's murder. It's as bad as it gets. But for the job of law enforcement, it's also to... Your job is to interact, and you are the ones on the front line who have to be there... Um, But keep it in the back of your mind that there are little girls like that whose dads, you know, you're going to be interacting with or moms you may be interacting with. So everything that you do um, has effects down the line. And to keep it in mind that everyone, regardless of, of what they're engaged in, there's always more to them. I'm reminded of what one of the bystanders who took the stand during the trial, Charles McMillan, said. He said this is what he said to officers anytime he saw them and that he even said it to Derek Chauvin before May 25th. He'd seen him out in the world uh, in a different situation. And he told him, I'm praying you get home to your family and you let the other guy get home to their family too. 
And that's just, I mean, it's as simple as that, that you hope that all parties involved are going to be okay because they both have lives. There, there's a lot, there's a lot to that statement. And I remember that was such a, a big part of, of, of that trial. Cause the, the, the trial obviously is about Derek Chauvin and, and what he did and what happened to George Floyd. But because the story became so much bigger, um, we need to pull things out of it and we need to understand it and, and make things better moving forward. And, to me, that that's an amazing part of it, you know, because police officers want to go home at the end of the day. That's and, and, you know, I talk to police every night on my show, every every night. And that's an overriding theme is that it, it, officer safety is is part of what they do. But, you know, their job is inherently dangerous. So how do you how do you strike that balance? And it's tough and it's difficult. Um, now, this case, the case of, of George Floyd uh, it's obvious no officers were in danger at all at any moment there, which is what made this one much different than other officer-involved deaths, is that the, the police, there was no threat to police. There was no danger to police, uh, which I think made it much more difficult for, for people to understand why it even happened. Um, but yeah, understanding that for, for the best case scenarios, everybody goes home. Everybody goes home or... You know, if someone's getting arrested, they go to jail, but everyone goes goes to where they're going and they get there safely when possible, right? When possible. And this case screams out. There was no reason why everyone should not have survived this. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's beyond anything. So, um, Julie, I wanted to... What, so when you think about what happened that day, right, and and and... What did we ever get an answer to the question as to why it happened? To me, that's the lingering question, isn't it? Like in so many of the murder trials that we cover on court TV, we always hear about motive, right? And everyone wants to know motive. You don't have to prove motive. It's never an element of the crime unless it's a hate crime. But did we ever get an answer? Did, did, did we get close to an answer during the course of this trial as to why this happened? Why these actions were taken by Derek Chauvin? I don't think we heard a motive. The prosecution didn't really focus on what his motivations were that day. They didn't even get into some of the prior uh, arrests that he made that were similar that may have helped suggesting motive to this jury, but they chose not to go that route, uh, perhaps because they didn't have a clear enough answer for themselves and they felt the evidence stood on its own. Uh, but that would be an interesting why that Derek Chauvin could potentially give in this formal statement that he says he can't make today, but may make in the future. Um, he does have those hate crimes against him, the charges. So that suggests some motivation as well. And if there is a plea deal in that case, perhaps that will come with an allocution. Let's take a listen to George Floyd's brother, because... This is exactly what he was talking about when he gave his victim impact statement. I wanted to know from the man himself, why? What were you thinking? What was going through your head when you had your knee on my brother's neck? Why, why when, you, when you knew that he Posed no threat anymore. He, had, he was handcuffed. Why you didn't at least get up? Why you stayed there? 
And going back to what we we started this whole podcast off with, which was Derek Chauvin talking about, you know, I hope some some peace of mind from some uh, information of interest. Well, this is what they want to know. This is what they want to know. And this is this is very consistent with what we hear from uh, victims of, of, of murders all the time from their family is, is why? Why? I just want to know why. And that question has not been answered. And I think that's the only thing um, that Derek Chauvin could say that could somehow um, answer the, 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 the cryptic message that he sent. Right. So. Let's get back to the whole scenario. Guilty plea, like you said, in, in the federal case, waive all the appeals, state exactly what you were thinking, why you did what you did, um, and waive all your rights to appeals and just be done with it and turn the page. And, and, and maybe, maybe um, that's what he was talking about because that's, that's the only way. That's the only way you get close to what he believed he might be able to accomplish with this with this um, information of interest. Information of interest, something that's coming in the future. I think it's possible, but like you said, unless he is willing to waive even his state case, uh, any kind of appeals, which they've got a long list of things they believe went wrong during the trial. And some of them, they may have something of a success with. So that would be huge for him to waive any right to an appeal on it. And, you know, Terrence Floyd there, that was the first time you really heard the family speak directly to Derek Chauvin. It's one of the first times they're able to be in a room with him with there being more than one or two in the same room with them. So really powerful moment from him and Philonis Floyd, the other brother of George Floyd who spoke. Now, Julia, after the sentence came down, you had an opportunity to speak with one of the George Floyd jurors. Give me the backstory there. I did. This is juror number 52, Brandon Mitchell. He was one of the first sitting jurors to speak out and to be public about who he was because this jury was given a a cover of an anonymity from the court. They did not have to come forward. Their name has not been released on the public record yet. Uh, So unless they choose to come forward, we really don't know who they are. And he was in downtown Minneapolis watching the sentencing and then came and spoke to us right after Uh, that sentence came down and he said it was on the light side of what he thought the judge would ultimately give Derek Chauvin, but that he respected the judge's decision and felt that it was a fair sentence after convicting this officer of murder. Let's listen to part of your interview. Yeah, for me, the single most difficult thing was 100% whenever um, George's brother was on the stand. When he was on the stand and they were going over their baby pictures and pictures when they were growing up, uh, that was by far the most difficult time of the entire trial. Um, Just seeing the pictures and hearing the stories behind them and the stories of their childhood and just things like that, just brotherly things that had nothing to do with anything else besides them just being brothers. Um, That was by far the most difficult day. It's hard to hear him talk about his mom, how he lost his mom that same month. And then George Floyd in a month that was supposed to be his anniversary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is very, I hope there are prosecutors listening to this. And I hope they pay attention to that, Julia. Because way too many times in in courtrooms across America, the, the trial becomes all about the defendant. And the jury doesn't understand or it's not real to a jury. 
that 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 there was a, a real person who was gone and to humanize the victim and bring the victim to life inside the courtroom is so important. Many, many prosecutors get it, but there are some who don't get it and, and don't accomplish that inside a courtroom. And and it as it turns out, according to this juror, it was a, it was a big part of that case, a big, big part. Yeah, a huge part for him. And in Minnesota, they have what's called spark of life testimony. It's limited. Uh, Philonis Floyd was really the only spark of life witness who took the stand in this trial to talk about who George Floyd was solely. And for that witness to be the most important to this juror is major. Uh, But he did say that his turning point in the case uh, where he knew about the guilt of Derek Chauvin was when he heard from the pulmonologist, Dr. Martin Tobin. He said the way that it was laid out for them so clearly of how Derek Chauvin's knee was the cause, that was when he was sure that this was a guilty defendant in front of him. And what surprised me is that they really didn't give much weight as a jury to the arguments against cause of death, the drug presence in George Floyd's body, um, the heart condition. That really wasn't a topic, according to this juror, inside the deliberation room because it was so clear to them that cause of death was proven by the prosecution. You know, Dr. Tobin, if he really wants to cash in on this whole thing, can do like a one-man show touring America and just whatever he's talking, doesn't matter what he, t- he can talk about whatever he wants. It's just to, to see him because he was so captivating on the stand. It was amazing. I'm sure he has plenty of life stories that he could tell. But um, again, everyone we talk to, it comes back to Dr. Tobin. Unbelievable. And he never, te- Dr. Tobin never testified in a, in a criminal case before, right? And this is like his first time. Right. I don't even think he took a paycheck for getting on the stand, maybe for his travel expenses. But um, that was very unique about several witnesses in this case. Yeah. And another lesson for prosecutors coast to coast that I hope they take from this trial is is think out of the box, because that's that's what the prosecution did in this case. You know, there were some problems with their case. There were some serious problems going in. It was this was not um, uh, a layup. Right. This was not a, this is not necessarily an easy case based upon some of the facts, especially when it came to the medical examiner and other things they had to deal with. But they thought out of the box and they came up with a different way. Bring in people who don't usually testify in criminal cases, approach cause of death differently. Um, bring in these other experts, uh, you know, humanize. The, there's a lot of things that they did that were very unorthodox that worked, that absolutely worked. I mean, the, the juror told you basically that this was not, they weren't arguing in that jury room. They were pretty much all on the same page from, from, from the get-go. Right. He said they sat down, they went around the room to give their thoughts, and they realized they were pretty much on the same page for second-degree unintentional murder. It just took them a while to get through the jury instructions and go over understanding the elements of the other two charges against Derek Chauvin, third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. So. It was fascinating to hear his take on what happened in that jury room, knowing that there were no holdouts, there were no real contentious moments that they all seemed to get along and that they felt the same about the evidence they heard in court. Unbelievable. It's like uh, another sports analogy. It's like pitching a shutout. I mean, that's basically what they did. Uh, Unbelievable. And and again, I... You know, I thought there would be some issues with this case. I, I thought there were some issues with the law, some issues with the facts and everything else, but they put it all together very, very well, very well. Much like Julia Janae does on the air on Court TV. Court TV legal correspondent Julia Janae, uh, fantastic having you here. 
uh, on the podcast and, and incredible work out in Minneapolis. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Vinny. Thanks for having me on. When we come back, I will answer the question that is really the ultimate question at the end of every trial. Was justice served? For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. So at the end of the day, at the end of a trial, I, I ask this question of my guests every time, and I, and I ask the viewers as well, the 13th juror uh, that we do on my, on my program. I say at the end of a case, you know, was justice served here? Was justice served? So now we look at the case of, of Derek Chauvin. Was justice served? And for me as a former prosecutor, that's the hat I still wear. And I, I still feel that what prosecutors are seeking is what I am seeking which is justice, which is the truth. So was justice served? Uh, Did the truth come out in the courtroom? Uh, I believe it did. I believe it did. Uh, Both sides had the opportunity to present all their experts and everything else, and and the jury saw what they saw. They they watched the video. They understood uh, that a man died who should not have died and that uh, the man who was responsible was convicted. And then the question is, well, what's the punishment for that? What's the punishment? I think that's where the biggest um, debate is in all of this. And a few things you have to understand. It ended up at 22 and a half years, but Minnesota has sentencing guidelines. So, you know, judges don't just pull these sentences out of the air. There is some context and there are guidelines and it's kind of like a grid. And based upon your criminal history or lack of criminal history um, and what the offense is, there's a certain parameters for what the sentence should be. And in this case, without taking anything else into consideration, just the prior criminal history of Derek Chauvin, which is zero, which is, again, very rare in a criminal courtroom, and the offense, which was second degree unintentional murder, um, the presumptive term, which is the term that people would get if there's no other factors in play, was 12 and a half years. Okay, 12 and a half years. That's the sentence. That's what a regular defendant without any extraordinarily um, uh, bad aggravating factors or any extraordinarily good mitigating factors would get. And Eric Nelson, the attorney for Derek Chauvin, pointed out some statistics uh, during the the course of the sentencing argument. He said 66 percent of the people who've, who've been convicted of this in Minnesota get the presumptive term. So two out of three defendants who were convicted of what Derek Chauvin was convicted of, get 12 and a half years. So uh, the one third are the outliers. And of that one third, uh, he said about 12% get a lighter sentence, meaning that they had mitigating factors. They were, they were, had something in their background that made them even uh, better than a regular defendant with no criminal history. You know, maybe someone has done some incredible work in their lives or adds to society, whatever it is. Um, so 12% of them were less. So now 66 plus 12, that puts us at 78%. So the, the final 22% get a higher sentence than 12 and a half years. And that's where Derek Chauvin ended up. He ended up in that top fifth of people 
uh, convicted of this with no criminal history in the state of uh, Minnesota. So the judge went 10 years above the presumptive term, 10 years above. Now, the maximum he could have given Derek Chauvin was 40 years. That's what the family wanted. That's what they felt under these circumstances would have been justice in the case, the maximum. But you, you look at the, the aggravating and mitigating factors, and the judge found two aggravating factors and, and two factors that he weighed heavily. And, and one was a position of authority. He's a police officer, not just a police officer, but he is the, the lead police officer at the scene, the senior officer at the scene. So you can understand how he is uh, using that position of authority to commit the crime and help commit the crime. So the judge found that to be an aggravating factor, so bumped it up for that. And also said uh, particular cruelty. And um, in this case, the particular cruelty comes down to George Floyd screaming for his life, all the people watching and screaming and saying stop in the, in the nine minutes and 29 seconds. That's what made this particularly cruel. Um, so the judge took that into account to depart upwardly from the presumptive term to go from 12 and a half years and add 10 years to that. Now, with those two aggravating factors, um, which are the two that he weighed heavily, um, could you get all the way up to 40 years? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But this is a this is a harsh sentence for what he was convicted of. It's a harsh sentence for a criminal defendant with no prior criminal history. You have to understand what happens day in and day out in our system of justice. Most criminal defendants come in with long rap sheets. It's not their first time at the rodeo. And and even and I've heard arguments from defense attorneys. Your Honor, this defendant only has three priors. <laughs> and and I would look at it. What only three priors? Only three? But in, in the real world, yes, the defense attorney was actually accurate compared to the other criminal defendants we were sentencing day in and day out inside the courtroom. Only three priors isn't that bad. And they'd be making arguments for, for probation on someone that's got three priors. So here's someone with zero priors, 22 and a half years. Uh, that's a real sentence. Uh, still facing time in the, in the federal case. We'll, we'll continue to track that to see what, if anything, happens there. But at the end of the day, uh, based upon... All of the factors, I think it was a fair um, sentence by the judge based upon who Derek Chauvin is and, and what he did. I mean, 22 and a half years. I mean, that's there, there was another police officer in Minnesota who was convicted. He shot and killed an innocent woman unarmed. OK, this woman had called police to investigate. She heard something in an alleyway. She thought someone was being attacked. Police respond. She goes up to the police car to tell him the cop shoots her. And he, he's convicted. He was facing the same exact sentence as Derek Chauvin, and he got the presumptive term of 12 and a half years. There were no aggravating factors there. So, you know, just shot her. Boom. Dead. No particular cruelty. No abuse of authority. None of that. So based upon the history and everything else, all things considered, from my perspective, justice was served here. The truth came out in the courtroom, and the sentence was fair and appropriate. Okay, folks, don't forget, Court TV is a network, gavel-to-gavel coverage of the nation's biggest trials, like Derek Chauvin. Uh, we've got Ahmaud Arbery coming up. We've got Kyle Rittenhouse coming up. Uh, we, we've got a, a full slate, day in and day out. If you've got a digital antenna, 
Rescan your antenna to find our signal. Go on CourtTV.com. Check the show notes. We've got links to incredible, incredible footage from inside uh, the courtroom, as well as other information about all the cases we're covering, including this one. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.